Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. Well, today we're going to be talking about the flood, so we're continuing, continuing on with our series and on creation. Of course, the flood is an integral part to understanding creation and what creation is all about. And so as we begin this topic of the flood, Noah's flood, it, it reminds me of several occasions when I've been talking to people at evangelistic programs or others who have come to me and they've sort of said, you know what, they're, they're sort of, they've never met somebody before who actually believes in creation. They pick up that I, I believe in creation and they've asked me the question, do you believe in dinosaurs? And I find it a most fascinating question whenever someone asks me, do you believe in dinosaurs? Because it reveals a number of things. First of all, it reveals the mindset of people who are out there in the community looking on at us as Christians. They look at us as Christians as people who somehow leave their brains behind when they walk in the church door. And even though the, 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 the world is full of dinosaur bones, that, no, we don't believe in dinosaurs. The other thing that uh, I find interesting about it is that both Christians and creationists use exactly the same evidence. The evidence, because people come to, well, where's your evidence for creation? Well, it's exactly the same evidence that you have for evolution. Evidence by nature doesn't change, does it? It all comes down to the interpretation that you place upon the evidence. And so this is what we have with the situation of the flood and we have to ask ourselves, does what we see in our world today reflect a global flood or does it reflect something that was put down millions and millions of years ago? We're going to look at a couple of passages from the Bible as we begin. We're going to begin in Psalms. Psalms chapter 24 verse 1 and 2. Psalms 24, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that live in it. For he has founded, founded it upon the seas and established it upon the flood. Now, why don't you stop and think about this passage for a moment. The Bible says that the world that we see today has been established on the flood. And so in many ways, it is the flood that connects what we see with what we read in the Bible. And so we're going to look at the flood and where, what it has produced and how it explains what we see in our world today. Okay, let's go over to Matthew 24 very quickly. We're going to look at a couple of other passages because there are various Christian views in relationship to the flood. I have some Christians who, who take the view that you can trust the Bible all the way back to the time of the Persian Empire. And anything previous to that, well, that was just the legendary period of ancient Israel. Then you have those that will trust it back to the Babylonian invasion. Then you'll have those that will trust it back to the beginning of the kings of Israel. And they say, well, anything before that was the legendary period. And they have quite a few that will say, look, you can trust everything there is in the Bible except for the first seven chapters. The first seven chapters are all allegorical. And somehow they feel that science proves that. In Matthew chapter 24, we find a very famous statement 
that we're all familiar with. In verse 36, the Bible says, But of the day and the hour, referring to the return of Jesus, no man knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Let me ask you, friends, did Jesus believe in Noah and the flood? Yes, he did. And so if you're going to call yourself a Christian, the word Christian means follower of Jesus Christ, then if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, we're going to believe in Noah and the flood as well. Isn't that so? That's fairly simple. If we go over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. And right there in verse 7, the Bible says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Did Paul believe in Noah? Yes, my belief is that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and so therefore I would say that Paul, or at least, very least, the author of Hebrews, believed in the story of Noah and the story of Noah's ark. And then finally we go over to 2 Peter, chapter 3, and we're going to uh, go down to verse 5. Well, actually, we can start in verse 3. Verse 3 is a good place to start because the Bible says, knowing this first, that there will come in which time period? The last days. Our time period right now. Okay, so this is a prophecy about our time period right now. And whenever we read a prophecy about our time period right now, the first thing that we should stop and do is ask ourselves the question, is this being fulfilled or not? That's a reasonable question, isn't it? Is this being fulfilled or not? The Bible says, knowing this, that in the last days, our days, scoffers will come, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Did Peter believe in Noah, the ark, and the flood? Yes, indeed he did. And did Peter prophesy that in our days people would scoff at that story? He did. Are people scoffing at the story? Yes, they are. Should we be surprised when we read that in the Bible? No, because God through prophecy was able to see what was taking place in our world right now. In fact, the flood was such a catastrophic event an event of such magnitude that its memory has seed itself into the brains, into the collective memory of the whole earth. It's interesting when in the science of archaeology, one of the things that archaeologists will always look for is corroborating evidence. And the reason they look for corroborative evidence is that in archaeology, ancient peoples did not record history. They recorded victories. And if you ever didn't have a victory, you either didn't write it down or you wrote it down as a victory anyway. That was how the ancient peoples worked. And so archaeologists will dig something up, they will read something that they have dug up, and then they will always look for corroborative evidence that is another version of the same story so that they can compare the two and find out what part of it actually might be 
history. And a lot of this happens with the Bible. You know, until recent years, a lot of people said, well, you know, the, uh, the whole story of King David is a myth because it never discovered anything in relationship to King David. And then they dug up inscriptional evidence for King David. And so now you have the Bible who talks about King David and you have ancient inscriptions that talk about King David. And so now they all change their opinion and say, yes, we believe in King David because we have corroborative evidence. So you've got two pieces of evidence that are telling the same story. You've got other examples in the Bible, such as the decree of Cyrus the Persian to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And then, of course, people question whether that ever actually took place. But then you go to the Berlin Museum, you find the Cyrus Cylinder, where you have the Persian inscription of it. So you've got the Bible version and you've got the Persian version. There are a whole bunch of different inscriptions that are like this. And so when you've got two versions of the same story that tell the same story, you've got corroborative evidence, and then archaeologists will believe it. Now, the further they are apart from each other, the more they will believe it, the more credibility it has. So if you have one that comes from Greece and you have another one that comes from Israel and they're both selling the same story, then obviously this was something that was very, very well established. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is there inscriptional evidence or corroborative evidence for the flood actually ta having taken place? And the answer is yes. In fact, most things in the Bible where there is inscriptional evidence for it, they have one inscription. And everybody says, yes, we believe it now. How much inscriptional evidence, historical evidence and legendary evidence do you think that we have for the flood? Over 500. Over 500. Over 500 legends and stories that all have three things in common. And first thing is that the flood destroyed nearly all animal life or living or, or life on earth. A vessel of safety was provided and both animals and people were on board that vessel. There are, our Aboriginal culture here in Australia has this flood story. Many different, different tribes have this flood story. You can find it all around the world. There is no part of the world that you can go to that does not have this story right here. And what fascinates me is that with most things in the Bible, they only need to dig up one thing and they go, yep, we'll believe that now. And we've got 500 here. It's like, no, 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 no. We're not going to believe that. But that's just to to get us started with the uh, flood story. We need to, um, as we talk about the flood, we also need to talk about the ark and what kind of a vessel was the ark and this clicker. I've been happily clicking away here and nothing's been happening. I just noticed I've still got that on the screen. There you go. What kind of a vessel was she? Well, if you take the standard biblical cubit, and the cubit being 450 millimetres long, she would have been a, a ship of 140 metres long, four and a half storeys high, and displacing around 15,000 tonnes. That's, that's a decent-sized ship. It's not a huge ship, but it's decent. Alternatively, you could take the Egyptian cubit. An argument can be made that Moses, writing the flood story, may have used an Egyptian cubit because that's what he would have been trained in. If he had have done, she would have been 500, uh, sorry, 160 metres long, so just a little bit bigger than what we had before. However... If you were to use an antediluvian cubit, that would make a big difference, wouldn't it now? And so the question is, and we don't know the answer to this question, but when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, 
Did he take the original dimensions and convert them to modern measurement? Or did he just translate the story straight across as it was written down? And if he'd have done that and used an antediluvian cubit, she could have easily been 450 metres long and displaced 724,000 short tonnes, and that would have made her about that size. That's the uh, longest ship that has ever been built, and the ark would have been just a little bit shorter than that using an antediluvian cubit. Um, that's longer than the Empire State Building, for those of you who are wondering. It's called, she's called the, uh, the Seawise Giant, eight metres longer than an ark built by the uh, antediluvian cubit. And so then we come to the question of how did the flood actually take place? And this is a very fascinating question, one that I really enjoy reading about. And there are a number of different models that have been put forward by the scientific community who believe in the flood as to how the flood could have taken place. We know this, that before the flood, the huge mountain ranges that we have right now did not exist because you can go high up into the tops of the Himalayas and you can find sedimentary rock with sea-dwelling fossils right up there in the top. And so we know that these used to be below sea, sea level at some particular time. And so you can only begin to imagine what kind of an event would have pushed those mountains up so high. And so there are a number of different flood models that scientists have put forward. Here's the important thing. The important thing with flood models is that none of them are necessary. We don't have to have a scientific explanation for the flood. Now, I like to have a scientific explanation, and there are different models and different ones that I like a lot and some that I like less and some that I like more, but you don't have to have a model for the flood. We have to have evidence for the flood, but God is all-powerful, isn't that so? And if God is all-powerful, God can speak and things happen, isn't that so? And God could have just spoken, I want to flood the place, and the place would have been flooded. It could have happened supernaturally. But there's another, a, a number of flood models that have been put out there. There's the meteor impact theories. There's the canopy theory, where the world is like an, uh, an eggshell. There's catastrophic plate tectonics, which is um, one that's very popular today. The, the hydroplate model, etc. We probably don't have time to go into all of those. One of the things I've been learning in this particular series is that I do need to shorten it up a little bit. But um, if we get time, we'll go back and have a look at some of those uh, theories. All of them are theories. None of us were there. And uh, we are simply looking at the evidence that we have in our world today and saying, okay, how could have this taken place by natural means? Is it possible? And all of these theories are possible theories as to how the flood could have taken place. What kind of a world existed before the flood? This is important for us to understand. In Patriarchs and Prophets, we're told this, the hills were crowned with majestic trees supporting the fruit-laden branches of the vine. The vast garden-like plains were clothed with verdure and sweet with the fragrance of a thousand flowers. The fruits of the earth were in great variety and almost without limit. The trees far surpassed in size, beauty and perfect proportion any now to be found. Their wood was of fine grain and hard substance, closely resembling stone and hardly less enduring. Gold and silver and precious stones existed in abundance. And do we see evidence for this in our world right now? Well, we certainly do if we look into the fossil record. We live here in the Hunter Valley. 
And the Hunter Valley is famous for what? Coal. And our world is full of fossil fuels. That's what they're called because they're made up of fossils. And the coal in the Hunter Valley here, for the coal beds to be laid down, would have required vegetation that was at least 1,000 feet thick. Now that's, that's significant vegetation, wouldn't you say? And then we look into the fossil record and we find that everything back then was so much bigger than what it is now. Have you ever noticed that? You know, I think I've, I've, I've mentioned some of these before. But you had scorpions that were uh, two and a half metres long. You had dragonflies one metre across. Goannas that were seven metres long. Crocodiles that were 12 metres long and weighed eight tonnes. Kangaroos, you can see these down in the Sydney Museum that were three metres tall. And wombats the size of hippopotamuses. Everything back then was far bigger and grander than what it is today. Which I find fascinating because once again, if we are evolving, shouldn't, shouldn't we be evolving to become bigger and more powerful rather than devolving? You know, the, the whole fossil evidence out there is that everything has been getting smaller and weaker than what it was before. So this was certainly a, uh, a fabulous world in that vast throng. Speaking about the end of time, are multitudes of that long-lived race that existed before the flood, men of lofty stature and giant intellect, who, yielding to the control of evil angels, devoted all their skill and knowledge to the exaltation of themselves. Men whose wonderful works of art led the world to idolize their genius, but whose cruelty and evil intentions defiling the earth and defacing the image of God caused him to blot them from the face of his creation. And so we should expect that before the flood, there was a tremendous amount of knowledge that was available. All right, so now we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, if the flood did take place, do we have evidence in our world for the flood having taken place? Can we look around right now and say, yes, there was a time when our world was flooded? Well... The first thing that we need to look for in our world is cracks running throughout our world, giant cracks. The Bible says that when the flood took place, that the very first thing that happened was that the fountains of the great deep broken up. In other words, the surface of the earth was broken open. And water that was below the earth came driving up out of the earth. That's what the Bible says. So if the fountains of the great deep were broken up, if the earth was cracked open, we should see evidence of that in our world today, shouldn't we? Do we? Yes, we call them tectonic plates. And you can look at maps of the world and there are cracks all over our world today, isn't that so? We live in the South Pacific. And in the, in the Pacific, of course, we have the Pacific Rim of Fire, which is a big crack that runs all the way around it and is full of volcanoes that are pouring out of it. The second thing that we should look for if there had been a flood is massive amounts of sedimentary rock. So you imagine if the whole world is flooded, there is a global flood that's going to create enormous amounts of sediment, wouldn't you say so? Far more than what you'd ever get from a river. Well, we live near what mountains? The Blue Mountains. Sorry, the Great Dividing Range, yes. And the Great Dividing Range looks like this. Notice this. Have you ever seen that? 
See how dead flat that is? What does that give you evidence of? It's, been, it's a layers of sediment that have been laid down flat. That's exactly what you would expect. If the world had been flooded, massive amounts of sedimentary rock deposited like a blanket going from one side of a continent to the other. And so we can see that this sandstone here and the sedimentary rocks in Australia continue all the way up through to Cape York. You've got some other big examples in the world like the Tappet sandstone can be traced from the United States, from the southern part of the United States, down at the Grand Canyon, all the way up to Canada and across to England. That's a big blanket of sedimentary rock. The chalk from Dover can be traced as far as the Middle East. Once again, a very, very large area of sedimentary rock that has been laid down. So this is what we would expect to see if the world had been flooded. Something else that we would expect to see, of course, and this once again is our own Blue Mountains, is sedimentary rock at high altitudes above sea level. And so if this has all been laid down by a flood, then as the flood waters are washing off, they are leaving this sedimentary rock behind and flood waters, of course, are going to initially leave it as a flat plain, but as the waters get lower, it's going to channelise, isn't it? And that's what we see right here in Australia. In fact, they tell us in Australia we don't have mountains, that the great dividing range are not mountains, they are dissected plateaus. Well, how do you create a plateau? You create a plateau with water. That's how you flatten it all out. And then, of course, you dissect it as the water runs off. Okay, something else that you would expect to find if there had been a flood is sedimentary rock that has been bent. And so you can see the curves in it right here, and those are quite large curves, but there's other places where it's just simply bent on a right angle like that. Now, has anybody here ever tried to bend a piece of sandstone? It breaks. That's right. We know that, don't we? You can't bend sandstone. Oh, where's Paul when I need him? He works with... Um, stone and tiles and all these kind of things. You can't bend that stuff. We have some sandstone out the front here. Challenge anyone to try and bend it. Okay, so how are you going to bend sedimentary rock? The only way you can bend it is if it is still all of it wet and pliable and freshly laid down. That's the only way you can bend it. And so what you've got here, of course, according to the evolutionist, is you've got all these different layers, right? And they're all millions and millions and millions of years apart, okay? Until somewhere, somewhere along the line, it all got bent in that nice curve like that. The problem is that if this layer is millions of years away from that layer, then this layer is going to be very, very hard by the time the force comes along to try and bend it. And it's not going to bend, it's just going to break. Okay, what else would we expect? It's called classic dikes of sedimentary rock. Okay, so this is a little bit like when you walk through the mud. So mud created by water and sand, okay? You walk through the mud. What happens to the mud as it comes up between your toes? It comes squishing up, doesn't it? Why does it come squishing up? Because it is wet and it is soft. And the only way you can do that, squish a piece of sedimentary rock up through layers of sandstone like this or sedimentary, other sedimentary rock is if this is wet and squishy 
and this here is also wet and squishy. And so you can't have millions of years between this and this and this and this and this and this. It all has to be laid down relatively quickly at the same time and still be wet and pliable for you to be able to get these classic dikes that come up. Okay, you would find evidence of youthfulness in our world. This is Ayers Rock, of course, Uluru. Um, we're all familiar with it. And you'll notice that this is a piece of sandstone that has been bent. It's sedimentary rock. It has been bent. And the bend in it is four kilometres below the surface and it's pointing up like that. You see how the, uh, the layers in this one, they all go this way rather than, rather than this way. However... What's interesting about this is if this had been here for many, many, many millions of years and had been eroding away, you would find lots of erosion around the bottom of Uluru of where it had all been eroded away. And yet there is none. It just comes down to a nice clean cut at the bottom. We don't have that evidence. Sediment carried over long distances. There's a map of a sedimentary area within Australia that shows just how far sediment, one layer of sediment has been carried here in our country. Another one would be no erosion between rock layers. And so when you get all of these fancy layers that look so beautiful, they have nice sharp edges between them and you don't have areas where they have been eroded away before the next layer has been laid down. Because if you did, you'd have all of these dips and bumps and areas that have been filled in. You don't have any of that. You've just got nice, clean-cut layers just as if it has been laid down all in one go. You don't have a blend between the layers where it just blends into the other, which if it was taking place over millions of years, of course, it would all blend together. You have nice, clean-cut layers that show that it was laid down all together at one time as a clump. Okay, this one's an interesting one. This is called cross-bedding. You've got layers that go this way, you've got layers that go that way, you've got layers that go this way, you've got layers that go that way. And the way this works is by the action of waves driving sediment like that. That's how you get, that's how you get all of those different cross beddings taking place. Now, we're very, very familiar with this, of course. We see it on the beach all the time. Um, these are cross bedded layers right here, except when we go back here, these are cross bedded layers of gigantic proportions. You've never seen cross-bedded layers like that on a beach, have you? No, not at all. So where did you have consistent waves coming in to be able to layer up all those cross-bedded layers so consistently like that? Okay, so evidence of raging water. So you've got big rounded boulders that have been washed smooth. You've got very large valleys like this. In fact, this is called what's called an overfit valley. Who's ever been to the bottom of the, uh, the Jamison Valley, where the Three Sisters are? You ever been down the bottom? Is there a massive river down the bottom that could have easily carved out that enormous valley? No. You've got a creek down the bottom. How is that creek ever going to create a valley like that? It's simply not possible for that little creek at the bottom of the Jamison Valley to create a, a valley that is that big. So you've got overfit valleys. That's why they're called overfit, because the river at the bottom is too small to actually create them. Flowing through dissected plateaus. 
So you've got areas of massive erosion. So you can see the size of this valley. And you've ever stood up there at Echo Point and looked across? It is truly an enormous valley that has been eroded away. And of course, eroded through a, an area that we mentioned earlier that is all together too flat for us. And so we can, we can look at other famous places here in Australia, such as the Carnarvon Gorge, a massive, massive gorge. Some of you may have been there as well. How do you erode that away with the tiny little rivers that you have in that region? You simply don't. The only way that you're going to do that is by having a massive flow of water. They estimate that to lay down the Sydney sandstone would have required a flow of water that was 300 kilometres across. So that would have laid it down as a bed, so you had to have a lot of water flowing for a large amount of time over an area to lay all that sandstone down. And then, of course, as the water starts to run out, as the land starts to dry or the continent's being lifted up, there's going to be certain spots where the water starts to cut through and then all the water's going to go through there and suddenly you've got these massive valleys being eroded right here. And you can't explain that with millions of years of evolution by the small creeks that they have at the bottom. Evidence of raging waters where waters, water has cut through mountain ranges by overtopping the mountain ranges. And of course you've got an example here that has been cut through solid basalt. Erratic boulders, this one's interesting. These boulders we find in all kinds of unusual places. And the question is, how did these boulders get to their location? You see, some of these boulders here, the erratic boulders sort of weigh between 10,000 and 20,000 tonnes and have been carried 50 miles. That's quite a distance. How, did they, how do you explain that with an evolutionary model that they got there? It's rather easy to explain with a flood model, isn't it? They were washed there. You know, we're able to study these boulders. We're able to find out exactly where they came from. But how did they get... How did it take move a 20,000-ton boulder many, 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 many years ago and uh, get it to where it's going to be? Okay, so we need to talk about fossils. And when it comes to fossils, we would expect that the world would be one giant graveyard if the world had been flooded. Millions of dead things all over the world. Do we find that? Yeah, that's exactly what we find. If the world had been flooded, we would expect that there would be lots of sediment being washed all around the world. So you've got all kinds of sedimentary rock. We talked about that. And we would expect that that would bury all of the life that was on the planet or most of the life that was on the planet. And so we have fossils all around the world. We have fossil fuels all around the world. Our world is, in many ways, a massive graveyard. And our world runs on lots of dead things that lived before the flood. The reason we have oil, which is one of the most critical things that we have in our world right now, is because of all those things that died in the flood. That's why you find all kinds of you know, dinosaurs parts coming up in oil wells and these kinds of things. That's why it's called fossil fuels. And uh, sooner or later, it will probably, well, it can't last forever, can it? But they tell us that for every plate of food you eat, it takes eight times the weight of the food on your plate in oil for it to arrive on your plate today. That's worth thinking about, isn't it? There is a lot of oil in our world. We have been using oil for, what, 150, 200 years now? Doesn't look like it's going to run out anytime soon, but that's a lot of oil. 
Where did it all come from? How did it all get there? Can you, can you bury that much material without it rotting away and turning into methane through billions of years on earth? Or do you need to catastrophically bury it all at once so that it will actually turn to coal and to oil? Okay, fossils at every altitude. Marine fossils, I should say, at high altitudes. And so you've got whale fossils 600 feet above sea level. How does a whale get 600 feet above sea level and in Michigan? You know, Michigan is a long way from the ocean. For anyone who's ever looked at a map of the United States, how does it get there? Well, the only way it gets there is if at one stage that was underwater. Okay, evidence of mass graves of fossils so we've got our whole world is like a mass grave but you would have fossils that are all washed into certain areas if the world had flooded we see this kind of thing happening in our world today where you get things that float and in the middle of the pacific ocean you have a huge area of floating rubbish right now and so if you had a flood you would have a similar situation where masses of fossils would all clump together and then get buried this is uh you've heard my story about when I was a young person, I used to live in an abandoned apple picker's hut, right? This was pretty much my view out one side. And that cliff there is one solid mass of fossils. You can walk along the road, you can pick up any piece of rock on the road, and it's going to have fossils in it, because it's all made out of that rock right there. You can pick up any rock around that cliff, anywhere, it's just going to be jammed, packed, full of fossils. It's a huge fossil graveyard where they've all been washed in. You would find evidence of rapid burial. So the evolutionists tell us this, that animals died and then they sunk and then sediment covered them and then they turned into a fossil. Well, the simple reality is we don't have that process happening today. We have not observed that process. You know why we haven't observed that process? Because when animals die and they sink, they get eaten. Or they rot, which is kind of the same way of eating, being eaten because smaller things are eating them, and they disappear. The only way that you can create a fossil is for that animal to die and then instantly be buried by sediment. Now let me ask you this question. These two fish here, the big fish is doing what to the little fish? We understand this principle, that big fish eat little fish, right? Do you think that they just sort of died in situ and sank to the bottom and like were instantly covered? No. Here we have a fish that was in the middle of having breakfast and suddenly, and he was gone. And this is not unusual at all. We find fossils like this all the time. We would expect that if everything was rapidly buried, we would have exquisitely preserved fossils. And we do. Fossils still in motion when they were buried. And the, you know, most of our fossils that we find, you can see where they were. I mean, this guy didn't even get time to close his mouth and thunk, he's gone. Saw it coming, got, <gasps> and then got buried. Okay, here's another interesting one. I saw one of these in New Zealand. This is layers of rock, sedimentary rock going this way. And these layers down here are many, many millions of years older than these layers up here. And that's a tree going up through the layers. So here's what happened, according to the evolutionists. The tree died. This layer 
turned to rock. And then many millions later, all these layers built up on the tree never eroded away until it all got to turn to rock. And uh, I was in New Zealand. They've got this petrified forest down on the South Island. And I'm visiting there. And there's all of these stumps and trees. It's really, really fascinating where the ocean's washed in and washed it all away and you can see it all there. And then there's one that's still standing up. And it goes up through all the layers. And you've got the picture on the, on the, on the screen there, you know, all these millions of years that they're so confident about. And I've asked the... Um, I didn't even say anything about creation or anything like this whatsoever. I simply asked the guide, what's with this one that's standing up? And instantly, she got so defensive and started going on and on and on and on and on about how evolution was a fact. I'm like... I just asked about the tree over here that's standing up. I didn't ask anything about evolution. I didn't even suggest creation. I just asked about the tree that's standing up. Never did get a satisfactory answer, but anyway. Uh, we find these around the world. Some of them are uh, 80 feet tall, going up through many, 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 many layers of sediment. You would find different species that are all buried together. And so in Mount de Sautenay, as an example, you have wolves, bears, lions, rhinoceroses, deer, ox, all buried in exactly the same spot on top of a mountain, which you would expect if the world was flooded, they'd run to the top of the mountain to escape. You would have all of these species that would be deadly enemies to each other, all dying in one place together. You would have fossils being graded imperfectly from uh, simple life forms to incredibly complex life forms. The reason being is that simple life forms don't have a means of escaping to higher water, but the more complex life forms do. And that's what we see right here. And of course, we say imperfectly because in a flood situation, that is going to be mixed up, and that's exactly what we see in our world today. Imperfect layers of fossils with some very complex life forms at the bottom, some very simple life forms at the top, etc. That does not fit an evolutionary model, that fits a flood model. And finally, as we mentioned earlier, you would have a worldwide flood legend. And there you have a copy of the, um, or actually that's the original of the Gilgamesh epic that talks about the flood. And so there's lots of other things that we could spend talking about, but we need to understand what is the flood actually telling us about God? We look out at the world today and we find it is the flood that connects us from what we see to what we read in the Bible. And so if the flood is that connecting link, what is it telling us about God? I read some interesting things while I was, while I was researching this particular subject. And one individual had a whole website on how God flooded the world because the world became violent and people started killing each other. So God said, okay, I'll solve the problem by killing everybody. And he felt that that was kind of, um, you know, a, a bad picture of God. And, and he built this whole argument about how God was a terrible being, etc., etc., for flooding the world and so forth. Well, let's turn our Bibles back to the book of Genesis. Actually, before we do, no, let's go back to Genesis. Let's actually read the story. Let's read what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 6. Why did a flood take place? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says it came to pass. 
For it happened, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them, the sons of God, married the daughters of men. And the Lord said in verse 3, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. Notice what God does in this particular situation. God looks at the evil that is taking place on the world and he sets a probationary time for this planet. 120 years. My Holy Spirit is going to be here and my Holy Spirit is going to be working on people's hearts for the next 120 years. And that's all. Now I find it interesting because in this close of probation, God actually gave a date for when the event would happen. On the next close of probation, God gives no date. I believe that God did that for an important reason. By giving a date for the first close of probation, God has demonstrated to the universe, because maybe the universe watching on in our day would have said, look, maybe you should have told them when you were coming back, more people would have got ready. But God's already done that, hasn't he? He's already tried it. Did it work? No. What did everybody do? Ah, oh, you know, we'll get on the ark next week. Didn't they? Ah, oh, can't be really that serious. God gave them a date for when the flood was coming and the most intelligent race that our world has ever seen didn't get on the ark because they put off making a decision for God that they knew that God was calling them to make. It's dangerous to put off making a decision. When God calls to your heart, when God speaks to you, the devil will always come to you and the devil will always say, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that tomorrow? It's just it's not so convenient right now. You know, there's this to do and there's that to do and there's the other. Just do that tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and it's all too late. It's all over. That's a dangerous thing. But God says, yep, 120 years. The Bible goes on and talks about the giants that were in the earth, the antediluvians in verse 5. The Bible says, And God saw that the evil of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For he repents me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, friends, I want you to notice right here, what was it that Noah found? Grace. Is grace important to us right now? Absolutely. And grace is just as important to us right now as it was to Noah back then. Because probation was about to close on the world. And the only way of salvation was salvation by grace. Isn't that so? That was how Noah was saved. Noah was saved by receiving God's grace. And so he instructs him to build the ark so that he could rescue uh, the world and the inhabitants of the world. And so we find the story of the flood and the ark that takes place after this. But we need to consider more deeply what it is that is actually taking place right here. And we're going to look at a principle in the Bible um, to understand this. First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Nope, I've got the wrong verse. Let me try Second Timothy real quick. And that's the wrong verse as well. So I will 
paraphrase it for you. It is a well-known verse. You will know what I'm talking about and somebody will no doubt be able to find it for me. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. From God. The Father of... Something right it says. Yeah, the Father of life. That's the one. Okay. The Bible says that everything good comes from where? It comes from God. Okay, so let's think about this for a moment. Why was it that God was destroying the antediluvian world? When we cut ourselves off from God completely, totally cut ourselves off from God, can we experience anything good? Is that possible if you're entirely cut off from God? No, it's impossible to experience anything good because the Bible says that everything that is good comes from God. And you then say to me, well, wait a minute, I know lots of people who do not believe in God who experience lots of good things. How does that happen? That happens because God is working on everybody's heart and not everybody who does not believe in God has cut themselves off entirely from God. The process of cutting yourself off entirely from God is a, is a process that takes over time. You see, God speaks to our heart, and when God speaks to our heart, we have a decision to make whether we respond to the voice of God or not. And if we respond to God's voice, then we grow closer to God. If we resist God's voice, we harden ourselves against God. Our conscience starts to build up a layer of scar tissue. And that layer of scar tissue has less and less and less and less nerves in it until it becomes a layer of scar tissue that you simply can't feel anymore. It's a little bit like an alarm clock. Who here has ever mastered the art of sleeping through an alarm clock? Yeah, I've done it. Yeah. How do you master the art of sleeping through an alarm clock? You do it over time by persistently ignoring it. Isn't that so? Okay, if you want to learn that art, you've got to persistent, persistently ignore it. And some of us are, are, are capable of doing that somehow. And, and uh, I don't think I can anymore, but I certainly used to when I was younger. So what the mind persistently ignores, the mind over time no longer registers. And so the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, speaks to every person's heart. The Holy Spirit is giving good things, bringing good things to every single person on the planet. But if we persistently ignore the Holy Spirit, there will come a time when we have cut ourselves off entirely from God. Isn't that so? When He cannot reach us anymore. There is a layer of scar tissue. Our mind can't even connect with God. And the Bible calls that the unpardonable sin. You see, there is no sin that cannot be pardoned except the sin that is not confessed. And the only thing that ever inspires you to confess your sins is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, your conscience. And if you persistently put off listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, sooner or later you are not going to be able to hear the Holy Spirit anymore. You are going to be separated from the one thing that connects you to God. And when that avenue is cut off, there is nothing that God can do for you. Not because God does not want to do things for you, but because he can't. So let me ask you this question. If a person isn't, if everything good 
in our world comes from God and a person is entirely cut off from God, they've reached that point where they can do no good, think no good at all, is that person ever going to be happy? Is it possible for them to experience happiness at any level? Absolutely not. Entirely impossible. Okay, so let's think about this then. If you have, if you have a, uh, an animal or a creature or a pet or something like that that is suffering and there is nothing you can do to alleviate its pain, what do you do? Yeah. You see, the flood story, yes, it's a story of judgment, but it's a story of mercy. God is looking down on the world and saying, I can do nothing for this world. This world is in pain. It is in suffering. This is a world that has cut itself off entirely from me, and I can do nothing to alleviate it. I can work with Noah because he's found grace. But that's the only place I can go. The most merciful thing I can do is to destroy this world and start over again. That's exactly what happens when Jesus comes back the second time. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 6 and let's read what it says there. Genesis chapter 6. The Bible says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And there are three key words here. The first key word is the word every imagination of the thoughts of his heart. Here comes the second one, was only evil continually. The inhabitants of the earth had reached a point, the Bible says, where they could not experience anything that was good. And so what did God do? God flooded the world and he brought it to an end. And so, friends, we see that the flood was both an act of judgment, yes, but at the same time, very, very much an act of mercy. Now, friends, we live at the other end of time. And one day our world as we know it will come to an end as well. And why is God doing so? Why is God bringing this world to an end? The answer is found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. And verse 4. Actually, let's start in verse 3. And it says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Why does God bring this world to an end? Because of the pain, the sin, the suffering. He can't bear it anymore. He saves those that he can through his grace. And the rest are destroyed and pain, sin, suffering is brought to an end. Friends, we have something to look forward to. The Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. One day, our earth will be destroyed as we know it so that God can renew it and give us a new earth. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy and your grace this morning. We thank you that one day this world as we know it will also come to an end, that you will create it new and we look forward to that day. We pray you'll bless us to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit Adventist-Streaming.org. around the world. I'm on site at Hergelia Lifestyle Center in Romania and my guest today is Karen Silva. Welcome Karen. Thank you Casey. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for um, this opportunity to speak with you. Now I understand that you are from Mexico but now you are all the way over here in Romania. Tell me how did that come about? Well it's actually a very interesting story. I was studying in America mm-hmm. and one of my friends there told me that she was an English teacher here when she was younger. Okay. So she told me all about the place, she invited me to come over and here I am. Wow, okay. So you've been here for how long so far? This is my eighth month, I think. Very good. Now, it would seem natural for people here at this lifestyle center to have some uh, value of living a healthy lifestyle. Can you share how did you come to appreciate healthy living principles? Yes. Um, When I was 12 years old, Mm -hmm. I decided to become vegetarian and eventually I became plant-based. I also started to do more exercise and this had an amazing, amazing impact in my health. Mm. I lost around 22 kilos. Wow. I also stopped getting sick. I had a ton of energy. I was happier, in a better mood. And I just, after seeing all of these amazing changes, Mm -hmm. I really realized the amazing things that the health message can do for you. Yes. So I decided, well, why don't I get educated in this? Why Mm -hmm. shouldn't shouldn't I get farther training Mm -hmm. so I can teach others to live in the same way? These principles have had a big impact on your life personally, haven't they? Yes. That's amazing. You've obviously experienced a lot of benefits from this. What would you say is your most favorite healthy living sort of habit that you have in your life at the moment? I think exercising. It is exercise? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, because of uh, time, sometimes it's a little bit hard to squeeze exercise in my life, in my daily uh, routine. But when I do it, I just feel like I'm in such a good mood with a lot of energy. I feel happier, like I get more accomplished and I just feel uh, rest better at the end of the day. Yes, that's um, a lot of good benefits there that you had. Um, Now, another question I have for you is how has living a healthier lifestyle impacted you spiritually? Wow, wow. Well, I think the most important change that I notice is a clearer mind. Okay. Yes. I noticed that after leaving um, refined sugars or too fatty things, I started to feel more aware. Mm-hmm. I was able to almost think faster. And okay. Also, it changed my mood. Mm-hmm. I started to feel happier, uh, more energetic also. And this affects the way in which I understand the scriptures Mm -hmm. and I feel like I can listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, better. Okay, right. So it's enabled you to be more 
able to comprehend spiritual things yes, and connect with God more. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's a real help then for your spiritual life. Yes, so, definitely. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Now, what would you say to someone who is maybe contemplating making some lifestyle changes, and maybe they they're just looking into it or feeling the need to it? What words of maybe advice or suggestions or things that you've learned through your experience would you say to someone who is wanting to do that? Well, I would say do it for the right reason and have a good motivation. Mm -hmm. A lot of people get into it because they want to look better or they want to a certain piece of clothing to fit or look better and all of these things. But... Um, This is not the right motivation because when you uh, don't see the results as fast, you will give up or Ah. you will stop and throw the towel, how they say. But if you do it because you want to serve God better, because you want to keep your body holy Mm -hmm. for God, because you want to have a good body to serve Him better, for selfless reasons, Mm -hmm. then you'll have the motivation to continue to do it. Also, something that I tell my loved ones a, um, a lot is do it for your family. Yes. So you can be of more, have more energy for your children. So you can have more energy for your husband. Mm. And all of these things, I think, are a great motivation. Right. So is this the kind of motivation that has helped sustain you in your journey of living a consistent, healthy lifestyle? Yes. Yes. I want to be a good example for my parents, for my brother. Yes. And for my uncle, everybody in my family. Um, Not all of them are vegetarian. Not all of them follow a healthy lifestyle. Mm. And at the beginning, they were a little worried about me. Karen, are you going to be okay? Are you going to have any deficiencies? (laughs) But I, after they saw the impact that it had for me, and how happy I was, they yes. realized uh, that it was okay. And they started to make some of the changes, actually. Wow, that's yes. amazing. I know for a fact that motivation is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with in terms of making sustainable long-term lifestyle changes. So that's very powerful what you shared. Well, thank you so much for being with me today and sharing on this program. My pleasure. Our guest today has been Karen Silva. She's here in Hergelia Lifestyle Center as a student. Um, And um, she's been sharing some of her perspective and experience with us, for which we're very grateful. We've been recording on site in Romania. I'm your host, Casey Butler, and thank you for tuning in to Healthy Living Around the World. God bless you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.